Fun Factory.com has partnered with Locker Room Talk and Shots. So when you use my special code, SELS20, you get 20% off your Fun Factory purchase. Just head to us.funfactory.com and use my code, SELS20, at checkout for 20% off sex toys, lube, massage oils, and more. Cheers. <laughs> Do the sex. Hi, this is Annette Benedetti, your hostess for Locker Room Talk and Shots, the podcast that likes to think of itself as the queer NPR of raunchy women's sex talk. You are about to sit in on the kind of conversations women have on their girls' nights out or behind closed doors while enjoying delicious drinks and dishing about sex. Think fun, honest, and feminist as fuck, and always with the goal of fighting the patriarchy one orgasm at a time. Welcome to the locker room. <laughs> Ring loop. Today's locker room talk topic is sex and intimacy after sexual assault. Now, I know that most of you tune in every week for the educational fun often raunchy, sometimes spicy content uh, about sex and sexuality here. And I love to have those conversations. But in honor of Sexual Assault Awareness Month, I feel it's only appropriate that we take time to address the darker side of sex. What happens when consent is not present? What happens when boundaries are broken? When people force themselves upon other people in a sexual way. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the stats. I'm going to throw out some quick ones. I picked up off the web. One in four American women have been raped. One in 26 men. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. There are tons of stats like this out there. But when I did my research, the information that I could not find was what happens after. What kind of effects come from sexual assault when relating to sex and intimacy afterwards? How does the trauma show up in sexual relationships and intimacy and how does someone move forward? Well, I am very fortunate today to have a guest who is an expert on this topic and can answer some of these heavy questions and hopefully offer um, input help and guidance to some of the listeners out there who might need it. My guest today is Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Uh, she is a licensed psychologist and a certified sex therapist and the founder of Modern Int Intimacy. Uh, Kate, I would like you to take a moment to introduce yourself to my listeners. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. This is a wonderfully important and sometimes really difficult topic to discuss. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm a, a licensed psychologist, a clinical and forensic psychologist. And as you mentioned, a certified sex therapist, certified sex addiction therapist, and a level three, excuse me, level three trained PACT therapist. Um, I got started in this work treating the perpetrators of sexual violence. So for many, many years, I worked in prisons and wanted to understand what compelled uh, sexually violating behavior. And it was a fruitful study in the sense that I got a much deeper understanding of the motivation for sexual violence and 
also the effects that sexual violence can leave in the wake uh, of, of that event happening for survivors' lives. Um, so I spent many years working with survivors and even developed uh, a program to help ameliorate the long-term symptoms of sexual trauma for people of all genders and to really help them reclaim uh, an embodied and and vitality-filled life following trauma. So I'm really excited to dive into some of the um, some of the, the questions that we're going to go over today and hopefully create a path forward for anybody who might be listening. I really appreciate it. I have been very honest throughout this podcast uh, with my listeners about being uh, someone who has experienced childhood rape and sexual assault. And so this is a pretty intense podcast for me, but one that I'm just so passionate about. And I'm excited to have someone like you to talk to about this. So uh, we are having coffee. Oh, I'm having coffee. You're having tea this morning. I'm having I'm having some matcha. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we are going to raise our glass. And this cheers goes out to all of the survivors who are navigating sex and intimacy after sexual assault. We're here for you and with you. And we raise our glasses to you. Cheers. Cheers. All right. I just want to dive right in. Okay. Like, let's let's go for the obvious. What are some of the ways that the trauma from sexual assaults uh can show up in intimacy and sex lives of survivors? Yeah. So there are so many ways. And and I want to start by first saying that sexual trauma, like any trauma, but especially sexual trauma can actually impact so many other domains of our lives with such intensity. And the impact on those domains also can have impact on our relationship with sex and intimacy. So it's a really um, interconnected experience of impact when you think about how sexual trauma can affect our identity. It can affect our sense of self-worth. It can affect the way that we trust or don't trust um, in non-sexual relationships, friendships with uh, parents, family, bosses, neighbors. Um, It can influence our relationship with food, with exercise, with our perception of our bodies. And of course, all of those things play a role in how we see ourselves as sexual beings and how we experience ourselves as sexual beings. It also can influence not just our sense of autonomy when it comes to sexuality, but our sense of autonomy in the world and permission to be in the world. Because for many survivors, the trauma that was um, acted against them removed their sense of agency and autonomy, not just sexually, but in so many other ways. And that can be confounded and amplified based on the kind of support they did or did not receive after the event. So it's, I think, important to honor that it's hard sometimes to create a really clean bullet point list of how impacted people can be, because so much of the impact that someone will experience depends on the nature of the event, the relationship um, to the perpetrator, if there was one, a known relationship, the kind of support they received after their age, their pre-trauma ways of functioning and being in the world. And so as people are thinking about healing and sort of looking at the 
the ripple effect of sexual trauma in their lives, it's really important to one, give yourself a lot of compassion and two, really be open to the possibility that you might unearth new layers of impact over the course of your life. And that's to be expected, especially if you are engaged in any kind of healing endeavor uh, where you're consciously looking at how you have been shaped by this experience. Right, right. I think we talk about on this podcast a lot how sex and sexuality is tied into all aspects of being. Um, I think I said in the past, people say to me oftentimes, Annette, why is everything about sex with you? And I'm like, because sex has to do with everything else about it. Like it's all tied together. When I talk about sex, yeah. I'm not just talking about what's happening in bed. It's, it's about my whole self, your whole self. So I think that ties into it. Uh, the trauma shows up in all areas of your life and most certainly then um, in bed. If you are starting to have sex with a new partner and then they mm -hmm. share uh, that they have trauma, are there any obvious things you can expect or or think to be aware of? So how it, how it shows up sexually for folks often oscillates, right? Immediately after a sexually violent act, somebody may be surprised by having a, a higher libido than they did before. Um, other folks may experience a dip in libido or want nothing to do with sex for a long time. And there's not a right or a wrong or a better or a worse way to be, right? Both are painful, um, both sides of that continuum of engaging in sort of a, a response of more sex or less sex is to be expected. Um, so we can see pretty drastic changes in, in desire and libido straight away. That can also happen over the course of a person's life, depending on whether they are triggered in other ways around the trauma. So for example, um, if they're watching something on TV and one of the scenes in a movie reminds them of the experience that was um, enacted against them, that could actually create a dip in arousal, whereas they might've seen a baseline restoration at some point or they might see an increase in libido. And I think that's one of the things that most survivors feel the most confused about is why do I want more sex when I am feeling triggered around this? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to come back and talk about that in a second. Um, but other things that I think you can expect if you are a survivor who's, who is engaging in sex, or if you're partnered with a survivor during sex is that it might feel difficult for them to be fully present in their bodies. Um, they might even experience dissociation. And that can be difficult to tell or notice unless you're really keyed into what dissociation looks like for that person. But for a lot of people, it can look like just sort of shifting their eyes back. So their eyes could be open. They might even be looking in your direction. But for a lot of survivors, their vision will change. They'll either get a more narrow um, focus of vision, or they'll actually sort of lose focus and drift back into themselves. Um, so that can happen. Sometimes pain during sex is present, especially if somebody is experiencing more anxiety or has been experiencing more triggers related to the trauma. Um, and sometimes, you know, this, this is often really shocking for survivors. They might actually find arousal to things or elements of sexual activity that were present during 
the assault or the abuse. They don't want to be fantasizing about that, but they're surprised to find that maybe there are some similarities in what happened to their already existing fantasies or erotic orientation, or something might actually be added. And that sometimes can feel really incongruent for survivors or hard to make sense of for their partners, but it's actually not, it's not a bad or a wrong thing. Right. It's actually from my perspective, like shocking how everything you say (laughs) is like, ticking off in in my head um and i haven't ever heard someone just be so direct like that about it um also i think one thing i'd like to ask you about that i have noticed with myself and i've talked a little bit um with my listeners about last year i did a 365 days of orgasms challenge where my goal was to have an orgasm every day which seemed kind of just fun and funny at first and then it became profound and one of the things that I discovered along the way, um, so I had never really been able to have feel much from penetration, like penetration, either I felt nothing or sometimes it would like hurt. And I was like, why does it hurt? Um, but I, I never, I was rarely able to feel my G spot, much less like a spot, P spot. And then through the year of giving myself an orgasm, all of those and, and having a partner that I was just able to kind of open up with, like I really found, truly found my G spot for the first time. I truly found my A spot and my P spot for the first time. And I've had conversations with people about the fact that um, I think that because of my early trauma, like I just couldn't feel anything. Thank you for bringing that up. And and I'm first of all, I'm so happy for you that you found all of your pleasure spots oh, and that you like, feel really empowered in that space. Wow. Right. I'm I like, I did not know it could feel so good. Yeah. I just really. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what, what you're describing in terms of not being able to feel anything is also something that is pretty common, especially for people who experience sexual abuse younger in their younger years. So what happens is often when people are sexually violated, they do go into a bit of dissociation in the moment. Um, Often, not always. And when that happens, either in terms of it's the, the level of intensity, or if it happens frequently, it can actually interrupt um, communication between what the genitals are sensing and the somatosensory part of the brain. And when we're dissociated over and over again, and our brain is developing, it it gets in the way of that part of our brain being able to actually read the sensations of our genitals or another part of the body that might be, might've been involved in the sexual violation. So for a lot of survivors, they'll get into adulthood and they'll experience numbness or they can't orgasm, or they just sort of feel like, a pressure, but no sensation. And I think that it's, it's really important to take that time around learning how to be present in your body, because what you did was the magic solution, right? You in a safe contained way created the opportunity for your brain and your genitals to build up a dialogue together where they might not have felt able to do that in the past. And so those neuropathways were not developed. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating and makes so much sense to me. I had always just been told, oh, it's normal for women not to have 
orgasms from penetration. It's normal for women not to enjoy penetration or to feel anything. And there was just something because I, I identify as bisexual and I'd uh, be in sexual relationships with women and who clearly were not having the same problems I was. I was like, how? I mean, I always joke around like, I know I'm good, but I'm like, I'm not that good. Like, you know, I, I would see them react from penetration and I knew something was missing. So I feel like this is just it's an incredible piece of information to share with listeners, especially knowing how many women have been raped. So mm -hmm. it sounds to me like uh, as a partner, some things that you could see that might be confusing is maybe you find out your partner has been sexually assaulted and they're actually very uh, sexually active and want sex a lot. Or it could be the opposite where they bring it up to you and it's kind of a breaks situation. Um, as well as maybe another reason, especially for cis men, to not put pressure on women about orgasming, <laughs> not ask, don't ask in the middle of sex is it could be, you know, it, it could stem from past trauma and they need a place to relax and open up and trust. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And it can be really hard for partners to be in that place where they feel helpless or powerless to affect change when it comes to their partner's pleasure. So I, I have a lot of compassion for what it must be like on that side of the equation, but it is really important not to personalize um, your partner not having an orgasm or kind of checking out during sex if they feel dissociated. It's a great opportunity to check in with them and to re-engage and to create intimate moments. And that can sometimes help a survivor come back into their body. It can sometimes help them feel more pleasure to know that there's a safe and non-judgmental reaction to whatever their body might be communicating to them or not communicating. Um, but certainly putting pressure on somebody to have an orgasm is whether they're a survivor or not, a pretty foolproof way to make sure an orgasm doesn't happen or one is faked. And when the person is a survivor, putting that pressure on them starts to shift the dynamic away from this co-created experience of fun and pleasure to another example of somebody needing something from their body and usurping their reality to benefit their own. I want to get this question out of the way, because I think heading into the rest of the conversation, it's important. And you sort of addressed this in the beginning. How long do the effects of sexual assault and rape last? How long as a partner, you know, can you expect this to affect a person's life? We'll be right back. My code SELS20 is your key to kicking off the sexiest new year ever had when you use it at funfactory.com. Enjoy 20% off Fun Factory's luxury products, including vibrators, cock rings, lube, and more when you use my code SELS20. Check out the Vim vibrating wand. Yes, the one featured on this podcast thumbnail. Grab the nose vibrating cock ring and experience more simultaneous orgasms in 2024. And don't forget to check out their rabbit style vibes. I'm talking about the lady by for toe curling blended O's all year long. Just fill your cart and use code SELS20 at checkout and enjoy 20% off when you shop funfactory.com. 
Cheers. Fortunately, it's it's not the kind of bell that can be unrung, right? So my experience working with so many survivors and as a survivor myself is that it the, the symptoms of sexual trauma tend to find pockets of remediation, right? Where they're just not as active and you're, you're not as triggered and you're able to engage in sex without thinking so much about the past or what has been, again, acted against you. But there are moments in life when that changes and you might get triggered by something um, out in the world or a kind of activity. Maybe a new partner introduces a form of sexual play that reminds you of what happened. And so there can be all kinds of triggers that happen during sex or in a, a dating or relational context or other environmental factors. But one thing that I think a lot of folks don't really um bargain for is that really happy milestones in life or what could be happy milestones also can trigger a disembodiment or a bit of a, a setback with relation with, in relation, excuse me, to processing trauma. And that can sometimes create a, a disconnection from sexual desire or intimacy or sensation for a period of time until somebody kind of reprocesses and makes sense of the traumatic experience and their feelings around it in light of this new event. And what I'm talking about specifically are things like becoming pregnant or having a child, um, survivors who choose to nurse uh, or who have young kids, even if they don't nurse, uh, they can feel really touched out in a way that can exacerbate symptoms of the the sexual trauma coming back because everybody's using their body, needing their body, wanting their body, and they don't have a lot of opportunity to get space. And sometimes it even feels like they don't have the agency to say no when they're feeding their child, for example, or their young baby needs to cuddle or wants to cuddle. So that's a really happy time for a lot of folks in, in their lives, but it can create complications in the way that we relate to our bodies as humans and also as survivors. And so there can be these really um, curious things that pop up over the lifespan that make a, a, a finality of healing or, or the symptoms of trauma seem sort of elusive. But I think what is really important is that they do they can be mitigated. The severity of symptoms can be mitigated. And um, as you assimilate the experience into who you are, it can feel a lot less intense when things do get triggered later in the future. Right, right. I think that it's interesting how as you journey through life, you think you have these moments where you're like, I'm healed. And then some day down the road, I, I like in the last couple of years have had awakenings of like, oh, that is something I've been doing my whole life that I thought everybody did. And I've been able to connect the dots back to the experience. So, and I think it's easy both as a partner of someone who has experienced trauma and as a person who has sexual trauma to, to want to like get to that, like it's all better 
point. Like it's yeah. all over. I would echo. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I would echo that. It And it can feel really frustrating. And for a lot of survivors, they can be rightfully so angry that however many years later, it's still something that they think about from time to time or think about a lot, mm-hmm. right? It can be really frustrating. Even when, um, for many survivors, if they know the perpetrator or know of them in their lives or have any sort of information about them, even something like the notification of their death or their parole or their something to do with the perpetrator can create a reactivation in the body and might put into action some new processing around their relationship with sex or the experience as a whole. Yeah. Something I've experienced, and I'm wondering if this is this is something I, I assume, whenever I experience something, I assume lots of people are. But one thing I recognized in the last, uh, again, it was just a couple of years, was that when it can be in a sexual situation, but when something stressful is happening, it could be good stress. I abbreviate it. I lose tons of information. Uh, Like I could have a great night of sex, but I'll only recall bits of it. I mean, it's all Mm. there. Um, And I've thought to myself, oh my God, this is an anxiety reaction that I have or a way my, my mind is sort of kicking in. And I don't think everybody does that because I know I'll be talking to someone about the great sex we had afterward and they'll be like, and this happened and this, I'm like, huh, kind of like my body uh, with my vagina shutting down. I think sometimes my mind also blocks things out. Yeah. That, that, that makes a lot of sense because if something's been sort of stressful in the background, whenever there's stress going on, our body might harken back to other moments of stress and sort of react to the same uh, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. And sometimes the chemicals in our brains related to stress can make the integration of memory challenging, right? So if that was a way that a survivor's body coped uh, at any other earlier point in life, but especially during a sexual trauma uh, to dissociate or to fragment some of those memories so that they didn't get stored. That's the way our brains keep us safe. Um, Later in life during sex, even if it's good stuff, when the excitement rises, that also creates adrenaline in the body, which might create that, that pattern of repetition of fragmenting memories. So it might make it more challenging to remember even the good stuff. If your body is alerted to uh, a rise in sympathetic nervous system functioning as a sign of threat, even if it's fun in the moment. Yes. And not a threat. Makes so much sense. So for a partner who let's say sees is having sex with their partner who they know has had, uh, has been sexually assaulted and sees them tap out, you know, kind of sees the eye movement or can tell suddenly they're not connected. Are there some things that person can do to reconnect with them? We'll be right back. Start the new year off with a bang. My code explores 15 gets you 15% off womanizer.com's Famous Pleasure Air text sex toys. You know, the clit-satisfying sucking sensation that guarantees explosive orgasms. Just go to womanizer.com and check out my personal favorite, the Womanizer Duo 2. Get ready for blended orgasms or the Premium 2. Womanizer.com has something for you, whether you are seeking clitastic satisfaction, blended 
blended orgasms or explosive G-spot experiences. Just shop womanizer.com and use my code EXPLORES15 at checkout for 15% off. That's 15% off all womanizer.com products with my code EXPLORES15 at checkout. Cheers. Yeah, but it's really important to think about and and to check in with whether or not that partner wants to reconnect because in that moment, sometimes uh, folks can't come back from it. They need to stop the sexual interaction and come back to sex at another point in time. But for some some folks um, or even, you know, sometimes some survivors might like to be brought back in and other times they might not be able to access that. So there's variability. But when somebody does want to be brought back in and it feels accessible to them, I think it's important to talk about what is effective for that survivor, because some survivors might really appreciate being held or touched or having their hair stroked or making eye contact. For other survivors, that might amplify the the distress that they're feeling in their body, and they might need a glass of water and a break um, or to you know, listen to different music or something to, to distract their mind and get them kind of back in a different frame of reference and, and availability. So I would say if you're, if you are partnered with a survivor, maybe check in with them and ask them not during a sexual moment, but in general, you know, set some time and talk about it with them and ask what they might need. And they might not know that's really common too. So ask like, well, what ways can we brainstorm together? What things are are we willing to try together in the moment so that it's planned ahead of time and you have an idea of what not to do, right? And we can't plan everything or anticipate everything. So a survivor might say, I really want you to look me in the eye and give me a big hug. And then their partner does that in the moment. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. So I think it's really important to have grace with each other and to not have an expectation that the survivor or the partner knows exactly what to do, but be willing to just be there together and and witness the moment because it's not a sexual experience ruined, right? It's more information that you're gathering about each other and how to create a safer context for more pleasure later. Right. This brings me to just my general question. When you have a new partner, um, in my experience at some point, I'll have uh, the conversation with them uh, about being a survivor of sexual assault. I may not do it at the beginning of our sexual relationship, but at some point, I'll have that conversation, especially if uh, that partner is going to become like a long-term partner. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, we're heading towards like serious relationship here. Um, And and throughout my life, I've been a little bit frustrated because I've had that conversation. And most often what I've gotten back is nothing, like no questions. No, it's just, you know, and I, I understand now later in life that people don't know how to react. Um, But I guess I think what could be helpful is if you could tell listeners, both, both people who have experienced the trauma and the partners who are hearing about it, how do they address that? How do we address that with one another? How do we bring it up and and say, by the way, this awful thing that doesn't is not sexy to talk about at all happened in my life. And I know we want to have sex. 
that conversation is weird. How do we address it and how do we react to it and use that moment as something that can be helpful moving forward? Yeah, I love this question. Um, First, I would say it's really important to think about what is your goal in sharing this with someone new, right? A lot of folks share it because they feel like they have to or they should. And I would say if you're engaging with a new partner or you're engaging in casual interactions, um, you don't really owe anyone an explanation of the trauma that you've been through, whether they are a current, a long-term or short-term partner. But to your point, when folks tend to get more emotionally intimate or they're going to be around each other, or if there's something that they think might come up during the sexual experience that they'd like to give that person some context for or let them know their needs around, then I think it's important to consider having that conversation um, preemptively. And it, it can be really tough, but you might think about what is your ask of that person? Would you like them to be a witness? Is this a way that you want them to know you more, just knowing the pain that you've been through? Are you going to ask them not to engage in certain kinds of behaviors that remind you of what happened? Um, Or are you trying to share with them some needs that you might have for aftercare after a sexual experience? So think about if there's an ask and what that ask might be. And that can be a way to frame the experience so that you feel goal-directed in the conversation And the other person understands how to be of service to you. Um, Lots of people freeze when they start to hear about someone's experience of sexual trauma, not because they don't care necessarily, but often because they don't want to say the wrong thing and make it worse. They don't want to be clumsy and be perceived as somebody who is ignorant to these things. Although most folks don't have a lot of information about the effects of sexual trauma. So it's to be expected that they won't know. Um, So I would say, think about what your ask is. If you're going to be around this person for a long time and you want them to understand more about the impact of sexual trauma in your life, it's completely okay to ask them to do a little bit of research about how survivors can be affected because sometimes just doing that emotional labor and having to educate partners on what the impact is on you or what you've been through is really exhausting. And it can be exacerbating for um, some of the symptoms or a regression that might come up when you have to think about it or talk about it. You do not have to answer questions about details. And if someone demands to know them, Uh, for me, that's a huge red flag, right? And and I would be very cautious about sharing anything further with them because they might have a hero complex and be trying to save you from everything, um, or they might want to assign blame and victim blame, which is really unfortunate, but it does happen. Um, So I think, you know, you might evaluate kind of how this person has handled hearing other things, other boundaries from you. Um, Do they have a context of being really empathic, either to you or in front of you to other people, so that you can judge if they're going to be really able to hear you and hold this information in a way that is meaningful and safe for you. Listening to you talk about this brings up the question of... um, 
as someone who's receiving, I've been on both ends of it, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. I've shared with partners once I've felt like, okay, this is going to be useful information to share. I feel very strongly for myself. I don't owe anyone uh, my trauma throughout my life. I don't lead with it. I feel like it's something someone has to earn to know those most vulnerable pieces of me. Mm-hmm. However, on the other end, when dating people, I've been sometimes shocked. I'll be on a first date. We don't know if we're ever making it to the bedroom and they're sharing their sexual trauma with me. Um, and so it kind of, it makes me want to ask you for, for people who are on both sides, when is it for me? sometimes that's a red flag as someone like, I know that I have compassion. Uh, I know you've been assaulted and that that's really important for you clearly in a sexual relationship. But then I'm also feeling like maybe you're not in a place to be dating right now, or maybe if you're telling leading with this, and then I feel bad about feeling that way. So I, I guess I'm trying to ask you, is there an appropriate time to tell? Is it, you know, maybe you're not ready to date if you feel compelled to tell that right off the bat? We'll be right back. Kick off the new year with a jaw-dropping 30% off of some of the hottest sex toys and my favorite, Gleam Lube, with code EXPLORES30 when you shop thethruster.com. Known as the home of the incredible build-your-own-thruster prime, thethruster.com is also partnered with lassiere.com, where you'll find gorgeous vibrating steel toys, and boutiquevoila.com, where you can grab a vibrating lipstick, a rubber ducky that gets lucky, or even get pounded by Thor's hammer, literally, all for 30% off with code EXPLORES30. Just head to thethruster.com where you'll find The Thruster, Lassier, and Boutique Voila and enjoy 30% off your site-wide purchases with code EXPLORES30 at checkout. Cheers. It's such a great question. I wish I had a direct answer to give you, but I think it's it's really important to acknowledge that sexual violence happens to someone and it takes away their agency, it takes away their control, it is very disempowering. And so sometimes that voluntary sharing is actually a way to get control over what feels like such an out of control experience. So if I'm in control of sharing the narrative when I want to, it doesn't feel as scary maybe Mm. for this person to find out later. Or some folks who share very early on and knowing someone might be trying to set a boundary or they might be trying to express their vulnerability and a fear that they have about opening up to someone. So it comes out in this way. Um, Other folks might be really uh, in the heart of processing some hard material or some of the experience. And so maybe they are ready to date, maybe, maybe they're not. And it's kind of like an uncontained, spontaneous sharing. In those cases, I think that's where I might um, perceive it as just something to be a little bit more tender about with someone. And I think a lot depends on what your goals and intentions are to be in relationship with that person. Um, In a casual encounter, it can be really, uh, it can feel like a lot. That doesn't mean that it's, that you're too much for someone if you share it, but it might feel like um, a level of intimacy that is faster than what the context would typically ask for. So again, I think if somebody does share that with you, I might in a really empathic way ask, 
what would you like me to know about you in sharing that? Like, how does that inform the way you and I might relate today? Because it might be that they don't have the words to ask for what they want or need, but there is something important that they're trying to communicate there about a need or a, a limit. That's wonderful advice. I love on on one side of it, the the sharing side, stopping and thinking about why am I sharing? What do I want from that conversation? Do I have an ask in sharing that? And then on the other end of it, when it's shared early or when you're not ready for it necessarily to instead of, uh, yeah, because I think I've been in a situation on a first date where that's happened. And I've been like, whoa, man, like, I'm just trying to decide if we're going to have date two. Uh, and it, and I, I didn't have the tools, even in reflecting on my own, and, and perhaps that triggered it even more to say, mm. oh, you know, what, what can I do for you? Or what is it that this conversation can do for our connection moving forward? And I think that's yeah. wonderful advice. Thank you for that. Of course. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember that trauma happens in such isolation. So for some people, it's important to just share it because they want to be validated in their pain. Mm -hmm. And it might be a context again, that feels really fast for one person or out of, out of context, but it might also be beneficial to just acknowledge, like, thank you for sharing something about yourself. That must be hard. Right. And it's an unconscious way that they're kind of trying to decide if you're a safe person or not for them. Right. Yes. So moving forward in a relationship, I just want to sum up or or have you give some good tips for people moving into a relationship. The information has been shared. You know that the the trauma is there, you know, and I don't know that everybody knows exactly how it's showing up in their their own sexual activity, but how can you figure that out together and start to build what will be a healthy sexual relationship that's super fun and whatever you want it to be? Yeah, I think it, it's important to slow down maybe and kind of think about the different domains of impact, your identity, your other relationships, the way you treat your body in general. Sometimes even people's relationship with work achievement or money is affected by the experience of sexual trauma. Um, their relationship with creativity might be affected. Uh, so it's it's really important to kind of think about what other aspects of who you are play a role in how you experience yourself sexually. And it can be challenging sometimes to address the things that come up during sex directly, but addressing them indirectly through, you know, focusing on some of these other things in life can enhance the relationship then that you have with your sex life and with your sexuality and allow you to feel more empowered in that space. But once there is a little bit more clarity on what impact there is, right, sexually and non-sexually, I think it's really important for partners to just get creative together and come from a place of non-judgment and from a place of curiosity and um, collaboration to think about what impediments there might be. So if one person, for example, Uh, really likes a specific kind of sex play, but it's really triggering for their partner who is a survivor. Maybe they can think about the physical sensation or the emotional sensation that they are trying to get from that activity and brainstorm together different kinds of play that might get them into the same emotional or physiological state. 
um, sometimes for, for survivors, they might feel apprehensive to try different things, or they might feel more shame in general around sex. So when that's the case, I would encourage partners together to maybe watch educational videos and they can ask questions and kind of dissect what they're seeing and talk about what they might want to try together or might not want to try together and just really, you know, approach it collaboratively because sex can be a form of healing from sexual trauma. And that's the key, I think, is being able to find a way to stay present in your body. So sometimes that means slowing down and taking things literally more delicately so that you have the ability to stay present with a sensation and decide if you like it. Uh, For a lot of survivors, that's really scary. And they either dissociate or they want things to move along a little bit faster. But if you can really practice embodiment together and non-penetrative forms of pleasure so that, again, your bodies learn to trust each other and you can slow down and stay present with sensation because that and like knowing that you're in a, a space and a context where you feel empowered and safe with someone else that is what really allows any kind of sexual experience to be part of the healing process that you embark on together. Yeah, that resonates. Wow. So much. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah. There's so much in what you just said about that path forward with a partner and healing that I, I feel like in past podcast episodes, as we're talking about how to have uh, good sex with one another comes up the idea of, I don't think a lot of us think about when we think about the different kinky things we want to do. We don't stop and think about why do we like doing that thing? What is the sensation we get out of it? Mm-hmm. What is the feeling we get out of it? Um, And what are all of the different pathways to that sensation? And I think that's a a beautiful option if you're with a partner who can't or is triggered by whatever that thing you're into is and can't participate in it, looking for a different um, way to get to that sensation together. But I think what was really stood out to me that you said is that sex can be um, a path to healing from sexual trauma. I I don't hear that a lot. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people think that the appropriate response for people who have sexual trauma is to not want to have sex, to heal from it without engaging in sex, and that if they want sex, it means they're broken in some way or nymphomaniacs because they, you know, had the sexual trauma and oftentimes are shit. And I know as someone who has a very high libido and is very sexual that I felt that if I were to, especially starting this podcast, uh, if I were to share that, to talk about it and reveal at the same time that I was a sexual assault survivor, that it would somehow discount what I had to say or make me less believable as a sexual assault survivor. So I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. and, And I think it's a myth that a lot of folks have. It's rooted in purity culture. Right. If if something if, if if sex is seen as something bad and negative, then if it happens to us against our will, we should ward off all for the rest of time and try to protect ourselves from that experience of impurity or discomfort. 
And for many survivors, they will want to take a break from sex and that's okay. And also just like when you get your heart broken, right? From your first love, which happens to most of us, you find healing in the experience of love with your next partner. The same is true for sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. When you feel ready and if it is from a place of empowerment and if your boundaries are protected and honored and your partner is a safe, a safe enough partner for you, that's where the good healing can come. Um, it also can happen through solo sex, right? And really yeah. re-engaging with your body again in a way that's completely on your terms and allows you to be in control. Many survivors relearn what they like during solo sex, and then they feel empowered to go back and share that with a new or a current partner. Absolutely. I learned a ton from having uh, solo sex with myself almost every day for a year. I fortunately had a partner who came and helped out as well, but um, I did learn so much. I'm still like taking in all of the lessons and it, it has been healing for sure. Um, and helped my sex life in a massive way. Um, so at, th at this point in the conversation, I think we're kind of getting there anyways, really talking about steps towards healing uh, for survivors who maybe never sought out therapy or did and didn't get what they needed or just keep coming back to this place of like, oh, this event keeps interrupting my ability to be intimate. What are what would your advice be? I would say that it's really important to be in therapy, but to be in therapy specifically with someone who is trained to address sexual trauma. Many trauma-informed providers do an amazing job and many have not had specific experience with sexual trauma. And it does require for a lot of folks, a different kind of sensitivity. Um, often talk therapy is not enough. And so I require, not I require, I recommend, excuse me, recommend, um, that folks consider some sort of embodied therapeutic approach. And that can be trauma sensitive yoga. It can be any kind of restorative yoga, something that's on your terms. It can be a bottom up style of therapy. Um, so EMDR or somatic experiencing brain spotting, something that speaks to the, uh, parts of the body that store memories, right. And allow for movement and expression and discharge of what lives in, in our bodies from a traumatic residue. Um, or, and by residue, I don't actually mean a, a physical residue, but an emotional residue an experience of stored memory in the cells. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. So, in the cells that's yeah. stored in this. Interesting. I didn't know. Yeah. That. Yeah. So talk therapy is great, but it can only go so far. Um, so somatic components to healing are really important. For some people, it's dance. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's stressing or it's it's um, qigong or tai chi that, you know, anything that allows for an embodied presence to be developed in your within, because that's sort of the key to reintegration between mind and body. And that experience of mind and body often gets fragmented during sexual trauma. So learning how to be present and uh, aware of what your sensations are is really the gift of healing um, for sexual trauma survivors, because that's the thing really that gets so robbed of us um, and what can prevent people from having the kind of sex life that they might want to have. 
And do you think that couples should go to therapy or seek help together if it's, I mean, obviously if it's interrupting their relationship, but it, it, or is that something that they do together? I, I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. I've worked with so many couples who want to find a path forward and either one or both of them are survivors. And so they don't know exactly what the blocks are, or they don't know how to move forward from whatever might be getting in the way. And so couples therapy can be a beautiful place to really foster that healing relationship and create a a path forward into that healing sex that many folks want. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. I feel like this episode has been packed with new, a, a lot of new information for me. Um, and I feel like I've done a lot of research and I've heard so many new things from you today. Uh, I think, I, you know, I, I want to encourage you all to, you know, if you've made it this far, you've listened, but to bookmark this episode uh, if this applies to you and to come back to this again and again, and use what you're learning in this episode to reflect on the experiences that you're having now. You may not even know that you're having sex with someone who's been sexually assaulted, but maybe what you're hearing in this episode, you're like, oh shit, that's what's going on there. Um, And that's important, useful information. So let's close this up with, let's say someone's listening to this episode and they do have a partner they're very much in love with, and they're listening to this episode and they're like, oh my God, (laughs) I do recognize some of these signs, but their partner hasn't um, told them that they've been assaulted. What what should they do? That's a great question. I I think... everyone knows their partner differently, right? Yeah. And so if if you're aware that bringing this topic up might be really hard for your partner, I would encourage you to give them some leeway that there's something that might be hard that you'd like to talk about with them and ask them when is a good time. You know, really fostering a lot of empowerment and autonomy around these conversations is super important for survivors so that they know they can set the pace in terms of what they share, if anything, or what they have to think about, right? And that even sometimes can be very challenging. Um, So even bringing the topic forward can create a a triggering response for someone. And also you might be able to say something like, hey, I heard this podcast the other day and some of the behaviors um, that they were talking about for people during sex felt familiar to what I've experienced with you. I wonder if you're open to talking about it. And then that might create a nice pathway into what the topic of this podcast is about and, and might, might uh, open up an opportunity to say, is there anything that you've ever experienced that you'd like to share with me? And if they say no, they say no, and I would leave it at that. And you might just say, okay, I hear you. And if there ever is anything you want to talk about, know that I'm here for you, right? It's is, important not to push. Yes. Is it your position that myself or myself, if even if I chose to be in a forever relationship, I would never owe that person my story of assault. You never owe anyone the story of your assault. And that includes therapists. You do not have to go into the nitty gritty details of what you've experienced in order to heal. If anyone tries to tell you otherwise, they are not informed in this area. 
So you get to share what you want to share, what you feel is necessary for you to share. No one else gets to dictate that those terms. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And before we go, do you have any last pieces of advice, thoughts you'd like to leave listeners with? This is something that no one ever asks for. And the having someone perpetuate sexual violence against you, no one asks for that. And it can be a really um, unfair injustice to hold that as a part of your life experience throughout the duration of your life. And I just want anyone listening who has had those moments of heaviness or anger to know that their feelings are really valid and justified. And also it does not have to define who you are or who you become, right? It be just because it lives in your experience and you get to decide how you assimilate that experience into your present and into your future. Yes. Uh, before we go, can you also tell my listeners where they can find you? Uh, I, I do know that you offer teletherapy, I believe, in lots of different places. So maybe after listening to this episode, you think to yourself, I want to I want to talk to this person. I want to find out more about what, what you offer. Can you let them know how to find you, what you do offer, um, and how to contact you if they want to? Of course. Thank you so much for that. Um, people can check out my website, modernintimacy.com. That's probably the best, uh, best place to go. Uh, myself and the rest of my team serve people therapeutically in New York, Florida, Illinois, Colorado, and California. So we offer teletherapy services to people individually or in partnership. Um, and we do have some trauma-informed coaches on our staff for folks who are looking for coaching instead of therapy. And we periodically offer different kinds of workshops and seminars and webinars. So there's a lot going on. Um, modernintimacy.com is definitely the place to start. And I also have a substack, which is drbalistrary.substack.com. If you go to my website, you can sign up for it there. There will be a little pop-up. Uh, so we're constantly providing information, free resources, and opportunities to journal and reflect on your own time uh, through that medium as well. And on social media, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Ballast or Dr. Kate Balistrary. Thank you uh, for that. So go check her out. And you have a podcast. Let's not oh, forget yeah, that. I do have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. What is your <laughs> Thank podcast? You. Yeah. Um, my podcast is the Modern Intimacy Podcast. All one phrase, very easy to remember. Modernintimacy.com, Modern Intimacy Podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we talk a lot about sexual empowerment, sexuality, and how to have healthy relationships. So definitely feel free to check it out. Yeah. And I will link all of this in the description of this podcast below. Do please go check it out. Um, there's a lot of information there uh, to support all of you in your own journey in empowerment and healing. Uh, you guys know where to find me. Uh, I'm on socials, uh, Locker Room Talk and Chats, uh, in Instagram, Facebook, She Explores Life. You can find me on TikTok at Locker Room Talk and Chats Podcast, YouTube, Annette Benedetti. And don't forget to check out my Triple X uh, subscription 
podcast. It comes out a day after my, well, this one. So there'll be something spicy for you tomorrow. Uh, Thank you all for joining and I will see you in the locker room. Cheers. (laughs) Ring loop. Bring sexy back in 2024 with hot lingerie, sensual body products, and adventurous sex toys from lovehoney.com, all at a 15% discount with code EXPLORES15. Embrace your inner bombshell with their gorgeous bra and panty sets, baby dolls, and corsets. Then explore your desires with their line of toys that range from vanilla is my flavor to tie me up and call me good girl daddy. And don't forget to treat yourself to a massage candle or essential body oil, all for 15% off with code EXPLORES15 when you shop lovehoney.com. That's right, 15% off on lingerie, sex toys, and more when you shop lovehoney.com and use code EXPLORES15 at checkout. Cheers.